Good morning. If you have a Bible, please turn to the very end of the book of Luke. Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. Start in verse 36 this morning and read all the way through the end of the chapter, or at the end of the book, Luke 24, starting in verse 36. If you don't have a Bible and would like to borrow one, uh, you can slip your hand up. One of our ushers will bring one to you, or I'm sure you can look off the person next to you. Luke 24, starting in verse 36, just to catch you up to speed here very quickly where we are in the book of Luke. I've been preaching through this book, and at the end of chapter 23, Jesus was crucified and his dead body then buried. Uh, And then at the start of chapter 24, a group of female disciples then later returned to the tomb to properly anoint his dead body for burial, but they didn't find the body of Jesus there. And uh, two angels then appeared to the female disciples and told them that Jesus had risen from the dead. So they very joyfully then ran back to the 11 apostles and the other disciples to tell them Jesus was risen, but the apostles and other disciples did not believe the women. And uh, Jesus then, though, uh, in the passage we looked at just last week, Jesus then showed up. He appeared himself to two disciples who were walking on the road to a town called Emmaus. And once the two disciples finally realized it was Jesus, uh, Jesus disappeared from sight and the two disciples then ran back to tell the other, uh, to tell the apostles and other disciples that Jesus truly had risen. And that is now where we are here at the start of this passage. The two disciples have just returned. They've just told the 11 apostles and other disciples that Jesus has risen from the dead. Let's pray before we read here. Well, Father, we thank you for every opportunity to gather in the name of Jesus. The book of Proverbs says that a friend loves at all times. And we know that we are not the ultimate friend who loves at all times. We have been very unloving at times. We desire to be loving at all times, a good friend. But Father, we know the ultimate friend who loves at all times is Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that in Christ, through faith in Christ, we have a friend who loves us always, every second of every single day. So we thank you right now, Father, that our friend Jesus is loving us. And we trust, Lord Jesus, that as we open this word and read about you, that Jesus, you will love us through this word, and you will open this up and change us through this word. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us now. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. 
And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it. And ate before them. And then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written. That the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. Amen. Amen. Well, we are officially crossing a major finish line today here in our church family. We have finally reached the end of the book of Luke, this great book of facts about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It has not been uh, necessarily a quick journey for us. It has taken us a little bit over four years to get to the end with quite a few breaks along the way. But if you do count up the number of verses in the book of Luke, this is the largest book in the New Testament. So a large book here, taking us a while to get through it. But man, I do hope this has been a fruitful journey for you. It certainly has been for me. I know the Lord has changed me in lots of ways, just traveling here through the book of Luke. I will be forever grateful for the uh, privilege to preach through this book. And in this final passage here in the book of Luke, Jesus gives his original disciples three very important final things. He gives them final proof. He gives them a final charge. And he gives them a final departure. And we'll just run through those three things here this morning. And then at the end here this morning, we'll finish this long study of the book of Luke by thinking for just a minute about what I believe is probably Luke's final and overarching application for us here in the book of Luke. The final to-do, if you will. After 24 chapters here, what does Luke now want us to do? 
And I think Luke tells us here, and we'll look at it at the end this morning. So really four things this morning. Final proof, a final charge, a final departure, and a final application. We'll think first here about the final proof that Jesus gave his disciples. You know, at the start of this passage here, we have a, a, a room that I believe was probably filled with people. Most likely here in this room were these female disciples who were the first to report to the others that Jesus had risen. In this room we also have the 11 apostles, only 11 of them now that Judas um, was gone. And Luke also talked up in verse 9 about a bunch of other disciples who are also probably gathered here at this time. So just Picture that in your mind, this large group of disciples here gathered in one room somewhere in Jerusalem. And Luke says in verse 26 that they were talking about these things. They were discussing these things that had happened in the last three days. The, the death of Jesus, his, his, his burial, and, and now all of these reports that were coming to them that, that Jesus was, was risen. Now, now the vast majority of these disciples, they do not yet believe that Jesus has truly risen from the dead. The women believe it, who came back and reported it to them. The two disciples who met Jesus on the road to Emmaus, they believe Jesus is risen, but most of the rest of the disciples here, they don't yet believe Jesus is truly risen. Jesus told them multiple times before his death that he would die and then on the third day rise again from the dead, but they just cannot believe it. John 20 verse 19 says that the doors here of this room were now locked because of their fear of the Jews. The Jewish leaders had already taken and killed Jesus, their leader, and I think they are terrified here that the Jewish leaders will now come get them and do harm to them. So they have locked the doors. Deadbolt, throw away the keys, security system turned on, nobody's getting into this room. And Luke says in verse 26 that as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. Just picture it. (laughs) Talking about these things, most of them not believing Jesus was risen from the dead, the door deadbolted out of fear, and Jesus stands among them in the middle of the room. Jesus is now in a resurrected body, the same body he had before he was crucified, but it's now perfected, glorified, a transformed body in many, many ways, a body that now seems to have some kind of ability to disappear and appear in some mysterious ways. Up in verse 31, when the two disciples in Emmaus finally recognized Jesus, Luke says that Jesus then vanished from their sight. And now here with the doors locked tight, Jesus suddenly appears. For those of you who are Trekkies, just think of it as Jesus somehow beaming his way (laughs) into this room. We don't know how he did it, but here he is. And the first thing Jesus says, peace to you, disciples. And that's just a great picture of Jesus' love and compassion for his 
disciples, you know, when you think of what's going on here, you might expect Jesus to enter this room and instantly rebuke his disciples for their unbelief. (laughs) Jesus rebuked his disciples on multiple occasions for their unbelief. He said things to them. They didn't believe it. The same things happened here. He said he would rise. They didn't believe it. You would expect him to rebuke them for their unbelief. And Jesus will rebuke them here gently, but he doesn't start here with with a word of rebuke. He starts here by speaking to their fears. He knows that they're terrified. And before he ever addresses their unbelief, he speaks to their fear. Peace to you, disciples. And he does the same thing to disciples today. You know, disciples today, we can all still live in unbelief and fear. And yes, Jesus will rebuke you for your unbelief because he loves you. But he will also speak to your fear. Peace to you, disciples. I will take care of everything. (laughs) I'm here. Do not fear. (laughs) But man, it's crazy. (laughs) Jesus is peace to you, disciples, and yet he's just appeared in the room suddenly, out of nowhere, and even though he's just spoken peace to them, they don't actually have more peace here. They're actually more afraid. Luke says in verse 37 that they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a ghost. (laughs) They're thinking they're seeing some sort of phantom here in the middle of this locked room. And startled is probably an understatement. (laughs) The Greek word for startled could also be translated as terrified. And that may be more accurate. I think they were probably terrified here. And I do think they knew this was Jesus. I think they knew that because Jesus doesn't, doesn't go out of his way here to say, it's me, it's me, it's me, it's me. No, I think they thought it was Jesus. They just thought it was his spirit alone. Some sort of ghostly apparition of Jesus in the room all of a sudden. Because what Jesus goes on to do is say, see my body, see my body, see my body. I'm not merely a spirit, I'm flesh and blood. But man, right here, they think they've seen a ghost in the room. Have you ever at any point in your life thought that you heard or saw a ghost or something show up in your midst you were babysitting maybe as a young teen you know that's when all scary things happen it's when you're babysitting just watch a scary movie they're always babysitting so you were babysitting as a young teen I remember being terrified in that situation all alone in this huge home didn't know any bit of the home all the kids are asleep and all of a sudden you think you hear something in the home or out of the corner of your eye you're just convinced that you just saw something and you watch too many scary movies as a kid so your heart instantly says it's Freddy Krueger it's Jason it's a ghost and you're not just startled as in wow I wonder what that could be no you're absolutely terrified a miracle you don't wet yourself on the spot and these disciples here think they see this ghost. I think they, 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 they know it's Jesus, but it's just a, a ghost of Jesus or something. And they're terrified here. 
So Jesus now proves to them that he is actually flesh and blood. Look at verse 48. Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts, disciples? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see for spirit does not have flesh and bones. As you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. See me, disciples. And Jesus actually uses that word see three different times right there. See me, see me, see me, disciples. And and touch me, touch my hands and my feet. The Greek word is actually grope, grope me, disciples. And see that I am flesh and blood. And man, you can, you can just picture these disciples now cautiously moving up to this thing they thought they were that they thought was a ghost, and 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 slowly reaching out and touching him, and looking now at his hands, and looking at his feet, and feeling his face, and and, and feeling his hair. You 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 were dead. Your body was dead. This can't possibly be. You and they are still having trouble believing it. Luke says in verse 1 that they still disbelieved even after they held him. But Luke says they disbelieved here for joy or because of joy. And I think that was Luke's way of saying that this right here was just way too good to be true for these disciples. It's the same thing that you Vikings fans will feel when they finally win the Super Bowl. You've got to be kidding me. This cannot possibly be true. There's no Gary Anderson shank at the end. No Blair Walsh shank at the end. You will disbelieve for joy. In your heart. And that's these disciples. Saul felt his body, but just too good to be true. So Jesus very graciously gives them a little bit more proof. And man, you gotta love what Jesus does here. Verse 41 Have you anything here to eat? Because <laughs> here's the deal, disciples. My body, this real physical flesh and blood body standing before you, uh, it was dead for three days, didn't eat. Really, really hungry at this point. You know that's what bodies do when they don't eat for three days. You got anything to eat here? Leftover Passover grub? Something like that. And the disciples say, we got a little broiled fish. <laughs> Man, I don't know about you. But if I'm three days dead in the tomb, I'm looking for something better than broiled fish when I come out. Man, I'm looking for steak or ribs or a big fat juicy Lucy or something. I'm not looking for broiled fish, but that's what Jesus gets. Verse 43, Jesus took it and ate it before them. And you can see what he's doing. He's, he's just very graciously giving his disciples more proof. You guys have now seen me. You've heard me. You've now groped me here. And you're now standing over me like a bunch of over-attentive waiters watching me eat every single bite here. You know that I'm not just the spirit. Because mere spirits, they don't eat broiled fish. I am Flesh and blood, a living, breathing, physical body, resurrected, yes, and able to do some new things here, yes, but a resurrected physical 
body. And man, Jesus has now given his disciples all the proof they need. They, they do finally believe that Jesus has risen from the dead. They know that Jesus has now been resurrected. Can you imagine the joy in their hearts? They went from all their hopes being crushed to all of their hopes now restored in an instant. He's here. Jesus is here. And don't you know when they finally believed it, they just embraced him. Just held on to him and never wanted to let him go again. It's real. It's real. And man, this is not the only time Jesus appeared to his disciples in his post-resurrection body. Acts 1-3 says that Jesus, before he ascended back to heaven, Acts 1-3 says that Jesus presented himself alive to them by many proofs appearing to them for 40 days. Now Luke has kind of just, just, just collapsed everything here so you don't see a picture of the 40 days, but somewhere in there for 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus was with them, appearing to them many times, eating with them. Paul says he appeared to over 500 disciples on one occasion in his resurrected body. And by the time those 40 days were over, these disciples here knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead and they went out boldly to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world convinced that Jesus the son of God God in human flesh had raised from the dead and man because of his bodily resurrection because of his death and resurrection you can now be saved that's it man if there's just a death there there's no salvation for you But because of his death and resurrection, he conquered sin and death. And now through repentance and faith, turning away from your sin and repentance, and trusting in and following Christ in faith, you are forgiven and you are saved from your lost condition. That's the gospel. And for those who receive that and do genuinely repent and trust in Jesus, guess what? When you then die someday in the future, and you will die someday in the future, because you are united to Christ when you die, When he later returns a second and final time to this earth, your body will also resurrect out of the tomb. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you will also have a physical, flesh and blood, resurrected body. The same body you have now, only perfected, glorified, transformed, like the resurrected body of Jesus. Able to beam yourself into rooms? I don't know, (laughs) but maybe, who knows? But you will have that body because of the Lord Jesus Christ and your faith in him. So that's the first thing here. Jesus gives his disciples some final proof, and Jesus then gives his disciples here a final charge or a final commission. If you look at verse 44, Jesus now says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you disciples, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their mind. To understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations 
beginning from Jerusalem. Disciples. Here he is standing among the disciples. Remember when I was with you before my death. I told you. I told you many times that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And when Jesus talks there about the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, he's talking about the Old Testament, the entire Old Testament, the first 39 books in your Bible, the Jewish people back then, when they wanted to talk about the entire Old Testament as a whole, they didn't call it the Old Testament. They'd often just refer to the entire Old Testament as the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, or the law, the prophets, and the writings, because those are the three main subdivisions in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is comprised of those three subdivisions, the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, all written by Moses, the, the, the prophets, and the Psalms, or the writings. That word Psalms was also was often just a, a one-word title they would give to that third subdivision of all the writings or the poetic books in the Bible. So when you hear somebody mention the law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, it's a reference to all those Old Testament scriptures. And that's what Jesus was referring to here. And Jesus says to his disciples here, I told you before I died that everything written about me in those Old Testament scriptures must be fulfilled. That is so great, cool, when you stop and think about it. The Old Testament books, those 39 books of the Old Testament, books that were all written long before Jesus Christ was ever born, they actually teach about Jesus, the Messiah. The entire Old Testament, the entire Bible for that matter, all somehow point to Jesus. See, the entire Bible is gospel. The entire Bible is. You don't just find the gospel in the New Testament. The entire Bible is gospel. This is the good news story of what God has done through Jesus Christ to save sinners like you and me. And the hero of this entire gospel message is the Lord Jesus Christ. All of it points to Christ. And anytime you read the Bible, anytime especially you read the Old Testament books, you must read it with Christ-centered lenses on your face. If you just read it with, without reading it through Christ, without reading Christ as the fulfillment of it, you've missed the point. It is all ultimately pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says here to his disciples that everything written about him in the Old Testament books must be fulfilled. And man, verse 45 says that Jesus then opened their minds to understand the scriptures. These disciples had read the Old Testament books before, I'm sure. But up to this point in time, they didn't yet have minds that could actually understand the Old Testament books. They didn't have minds that could comprehend the Old Testament books. They didn't yet grasp what those Old Testament books said about the Messiah, about Jesus. They didn't have minds yet to get those Old Testament books. The Old Testament was still a locked book to them. But Jesus now supernaturally opens their minds, enlightens their minds. The Holy Spirit 
turning the light bulbs on for them right now. So that they can comprehend the Old Testament scriptures. So they can now fully grasp what the scriptures teach about the Messiah, Jesus. Man, Jesus did the same type of thing in the previous passage for the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. If you look up at verse 27, Jesus teaching these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. It says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, the Old Testament scriptures, Jesus interpreted to these two disciples in all the scriptures, in all the Old Testament scriptures, the things concerning himself. He taught them from the Old Testament scriptures the things concerning the Messiah himself. And then look at verse 32. The disciples later, after Jesus disappeared, they said, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he opened to us the scriptures? Jesus opened to those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He opened to them the scriptures interpreted for them what the Old Testament taught about him, the Messiah. And what happened when Jesus did that, their hearts burned within them. And that is the Holy Spirit bearing witness in their hearts that all of the Old Testament ultimately points to Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of it all. Their hearts burn within them, the Holy Spirit saying, yes, that's right. It is all about Jesus, the Messiah. And now, with these disciples here, Jesus opened their minds, Luke says, so they could understand the Scriptures and what the Old Testament Scriptures taught about Him. And you realize that you and I need Jesus to do the same thing for us. Listen, you can read through the Old Testament scriptures a zillion times. But until Jesus comes to you and sovereignly opens your mind. Sovereignly opens those scriptures for you. And enables you to comprehend them. Opens your mind to see him in those Old Testament scriptures. Until Jesus does that for you, the Old Testament will be a locked book. You could read it a zillion times, but it's still locked to you. Jesus must come and open your mind and open those scriptures so you see Jesus in the scriptures. And when that happens, man, your heart will burn. And that's the Holy Spirit saying, yes, that's right. That's right. It's all about Jesus. He's the fulfillment of all of it. And I guarantee, man, these disciples here surround around Jesus, when he opens their minds so they can understand the scriptures, their hearts are beginning to burn. And I think it just goes on because Jesus gives them a serious lesson here. Jesus opens their minds here so they can actually understand what the Old Testament scriptures teach about him, but then Jesus goes on here to teach these disciples exactly what the Old Testament scriptures teach about him. If you look at verse 45 again, then Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and now he's going to teach what the scriptures say. And he said to them, thus it is written, thus it's written in the Old Testament scriptures, disciples, that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins 
should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Oh man, and if you just stop and look what Jesus just did right there. You know, He basically gave His disciples there a a little three-point outline of what the Old Testament teaches about Himself. The Messiah. You can't see it very well in the English there, but in the Greek, there are three critical verbs in what Jesus just said right there. Three verbal infinitives, a certain verb form. It's a very obvious little three-point outline right there. Disciples, what do the Old Testament scriptures teach about me, the Messiah? Number one, thus it is written, disciples, that the Christ should suffer. The Old Testament teaches clearly disciples that the Messiah would suffer and I have now suffered. Number two, thus it is also written disciples that the Christ on the third day would rise, Jesus says. The Old Testament clearly teaches disciples that the Messiah would rise again from the dead and I have now risen disciples. And number three, thus it is also written disciples that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in my name to all nations, to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. The Old Testament Scriptures, they don't just teach that Jesus the Messiah would suffer and rise again. Well, the Old Testament Scriptures also teach that Jesus, after He died, suffered and rose again, He would then be proclaimed to all nations. And man, Jesus Jesus says to His disciples there, all of that must be fulfilled. God spoke it. And it will be fulfilled. And here's the thing. At this point in time right here, When Jesus is talking to his disciples here, guess what? The first two points of that three-point outline have already been fulfilled. Jesus already suffered. Jesus already rose again. And the only thing left to be fulfilled was the third point of the outline. Jesus. His death and resurrection. Repentance and forgiveness of sins in his name, the gospel would now be proclaimed to all nations. Every nation, every people group hearing about the risen, living Christ. The Old Testament said it would happen, and everything in those scriptures Jesus says must be fulfilled. He, wrote, he suffered, he rose, and he would now be proclaimed and 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 who would be the people to start that proclamation party who would be the people who would begin to proclaim jerusalem to begin to proclaim jesus in jerusalem and and then moving out towards the ends of the earth the the apostles they would be the ones to start the proclamation Party, the 11 men standing in front of Jesus here, but also the other disciples here. They would all go to proclaim Jesus now. The apostles leading and the other disciples following their lead, going out now from Jerusalem to proclaim the risen Christ. 
all of them now beginning to fulfill the third point of that outline. If you look at verse 48, Jesus now says to his disciples, here he is standing among them, he just taught what the Old Testament scriptures taught, and now he says, you are witnesses of these things. Jesus was talking primarily there to these 11 apostles standing in front of him. Listen, the apostles, they were eyewitnesses of everything that Jesus had done and said. They were eyewitnesses of his life. They had seen him live and teach and heal. They were eyewitnesses of his death. They had seen him suffer and be crucified. And they are now eyewitnesses of his resurrection. That's why Jesus uses the word see three times. See me, disciples. See me, disciples. See me, disciples, that I'm risen. They were eyewitnesses of everything that Jesus had said and Done and Jesus was now commissioning these apostles. He was charging these apostles here to go out now and proclaim or to testify about everything they had observed. And and, and that right there, that's what a witness does. If you think of a witness in a court of law, a witness doesn't just see things. Yes, a witness in a court of law has seen things. A witness observes or experiences things. But then that, that, that witness is called on to testify with words about the things that he or she has experienced. That's a witness. And these apostles here were witnesses. They had experienced some things. And Jesus was now charging them here to go out now and testify or proclaim what they'd experienced. And Jesus wasn't just sending the 11 apostles here. He was sending all the disciples here in this room. They were witnesses. And proclaiming Jesus, it was now their one all-encompassing mission. Their mission. It was their primary task now as Jesus prepares to ascend to heaven. Final charge from Christ. Tell it, disciples. I have done it. Now proclaim it. Proclaim it, your witnesses. Thankfully, Jesus didn't leave them on their own here to do it all by themselves. Because listen, this is still a ragtag bunch of apostles here. (laughs) These guys, Peter just denied Jesus like about 10 minutes ago. (laughs) So there's still a ragtag bunch of apostles here. Thankfully, Jesus didn't leave them alone. No, look at verse 48. You are witnesses of these things, Jesus says. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city, Jerusalem, until you are clothed with power from on high. Ah, thank God for that. (laughs) The promise Jesus was talking about there that he would send on these disciples very soon was the Holy Spirit. The Bible prophesied, the Old Testament, Joel 2, that God would one day pour out his Spirit upon his male and female servants. And Jesus was now telling his disciples to get ready for it. Is coming. And Jesus did it. 
Shortly after this right here, Acts 2, the day of Pentecost, after he ascended to the right hand of the Father, Jesus then poured out his Holy Spirit on his disciples. And and let me ask you, what did that Holy Spirit then enable the apostles and disciples to do? Well, the Holy Spirit empowered them Verse 49, Jesus says, you will be clothed with power from on high. And the Holy Spirit empowered these disciples to do what? To do what? To just work miracles? Just go out and work some amazing miracles? Is that it? Because I do think a lot of people today of this twisted view of the Holy Spirit and His power. They seem to think that the Holy Spirit just kind of roams the earth now, working cool miracles for those who have enough faith to believe in it. Not much purpose to the miracles. Almost like the Holy Spirit's just saying, hey, I'm just here to work miracles for you guys whenever you need it. That's, that's my job. You need a miracle? Hey, I'm here to work miracles for you. That's what I do. And man, yes, the Holy Spirit can and does work amazing miracles, but listen, the Holy Spirit didn't empower these early disciples just so they could then work lots of cool miracles and make lots of money off of Jesus' name by doing it. The Holy Spirit empowered these disciples to witness. That was the primary empowerment of the Holy Spirit. It was a power to testify a power to proclaim the name of Jesus, a power to go out against all odds, a ragtag bunch of 11 men and another ragtag bunch of disciples following them, going out against all odds and proclaiming the name of Jesus, even in the face of death, in a hostile, lost world. The Holy Spirit empowered them to testify concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. That was the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. It was an enabling empowerment. Jesus had given them an impossible task. Proclaimed to all nations. But Jesus now working from the right hand of the Father was empowering them to do the impossible task. Because Jesus does the impossible. Acts 1.8, Jesus says to these disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. It's a a power to, to witness. And then they did it. Empowered by Jesus, His Spirit in them, working through them, they went out and did it. You can read it in the book of Acts. 28 chapters from Luke of normal people like you and me, empowered by the Holy Spirit, going and telling others about the risen, living Jesus, starting in Jerusalem and heading out toward the ends of the earth, towards all nations. So that's the second thing here, final proof, the final charge. The third part of this passage here, final departure. You look at verse 50. Luke says that Jesus led them out as far as Bethany on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives, a couple miles from Jerusalem, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing 
God. So man, Jesus, after spending 40 days on this earth with his disciples in his resurrected body to prove to them that he was really there, Jesus now ascends back to heaven. At the beginning of the book of Luke, the eternal son of God, Jesus, descended from heaven and took on human flesh. And now at the end of the book of Luke, Jesus ascends back to heaven where he started. Back to the right hand of God the Father. Just as Jesus promised he would do. Back in Luke twenty two sixty nine, Jesus said, but from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Only now, do you realize this? Only now, Jesus, now that he has ascended, Jesus would now be seated at the right hand of the Father in human flesh. In human flesh. And Jesus is still there. Jesus is both God and man forever. 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 That's the orthodox creed of the Christian church. Both God and man forever. He still is. Listen, Jesus didn't ascend here out of his resurrected body. Just kind of drop it on earth. I don't need it now. I'm just spirit now. Mm -mm. Jesus ascends in his resurrected body. Francis of Turretin once said, the divine descended, but the human ascended. Clement of Alexandria said Jesus was carried up into heaven so that he might share the Father's throne even with the flesh that was now united to him. It's mind-blowing to consider. It really is. In Jesus Christ, you think about this. In Jesus Christ, human flesh has now been redeemed. It has now been resurrected. It's now been exalted to the highest place of heaven. In Jesus Christ, the dust of the earth now sits on the throne in heaven. And you think about how amazing it would be if you walked out the door today and you saw a meteorite kind of smoldering in a hole out there. You looked at that thing, man, and you're thinking, whoa, that's from outer space, seemingly from this other world. But then think how infinitely amazing it is for the physical body of Jesus in all the humanity of our own flesh and blood to have taken up residence in heaven. And the most amazing thing is that we will one day see that body again. Acts 1.11, after Jesus ascended here, the apostles, they were gazing in, into heaven and two angels showed up and said to them, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. When Jesus returns to earth sometime in the future, he will come in bodily form. The same body that ascends here will then descend one final time and we will all see it with our eyes. All of us will then be raised from the dead and we will see that body of Jesus. Now those who have, have, have not truly repented in this life, they don't truly trust in and follow Christ, you will be terrified when you see that. The Bible says you will cry out to the mountains and the hills, cover me from the wrath of Christ. But those of you who have genuinely repented, you do trust in, you follow Christ, 
The Bible says that when Jesus returns, you will hold your head high for your, resi- your, your final redemption is drawing near, holding your head in confidence because your faith is in Christ and Christ alone. And we will all then see the body of Jesus with our own two eyes. Thomas Boston said, quote, they will see Jesus Christ, God and man, with their bodily eyes as he will never lay aside the human nature. Boston went on to say there, then we shall see with our own eyes that very body which was born of Mary at Bethlehem and crucified at Jerusalem between two thieves. We will see the blessed head that was crowned with thorns, the face that was spit upon the hands and the feet that were nailed to the cross. But then, Boston said, his entire body will then be shining with inconceivable glory. Oh my word. Can you imagine that? We don't know exactly how Jesus ascended to heaven here. The Bible doesn't give us all the details. It's a mystery to some degree. Luke says in verse 50 that Jesus lifted up his hands and blessed his disciples. A benediction of sorts. And Luke says that while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Acts 1.9 says that a cloud took him from their sight. And I do not think that was probably just some normal cloud that we see on days like today. I tend to think that cloud was the cloud of God's presence. Visible manifestation of God's glory. You know the cloud in the Bible, it's almost always a manifestation of God's presence of his glory. The cloud of God's presence led the people of Israel in the wilderness. The cloud of God's presence filled the tabernacle and the temple. When Jesus was transfigured in in Luke 9, the cloud of God's presence covered the the mountaintop. And I, I tend to think this cloud here may also have been the cloud of God's presence. We don't know. I think Jesus may have vanished here into what was very, what was very possibly a, a, a radiant, brilliant cloud cloud of God's presence and glory. Just imagine what that would have been like. Jesus raises his hands to bless you. And while he's blessing you, he begins to ascend. And all of a sudden, he's gone. Vanished in a cloud. The body of Jesus never to be seen again. Until he comes again. Jesus is now in heaven. His spirit is here. Spirit's here. Jesus has ascended. His ascension meant several things. It was the final vindication of Jesus. You think about it, he was condemned as a criminal and crucified. And when he ascended to heaven, it was God the Father saying, he's no criminal. He's the Son of God. Is the final exaltation of Jesus. When Jesus came to earth and took on human form, he had started his humiliation, a humiliation that would take him lower and lower and lower all the way to the cross, but then he began to be exalted. And when he was raised up into heaven here, he was the final exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, he was then, because he humbled himself, God gave him a name above every other name. Jesus Christ is Lord. And the ascension here was also... It was a new beginning. It wasn't the end of Jesus. It was a new beginning. Jesus now from the right hand of the Father working through the Holy Spirit in the hearts of his disciples. 
And man, these apostles here, when they see Jesus ascend to heaven, they respond appropriately. <laughs> you look at verse 52, and they worshiped him, Luke says. They, 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 they worshiped him. Yeah, that, that, that may be what you would do if you just saw that. And it was a clear indication that they now know that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. They finally come to grasp the full identity of Christ. Man, it took him a while. <laughs> Their understanding of Christ developed through the book of Luke, but they finally get it. And they fall down and they worship. And Luke says they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. How cool is that? <laughs> Luke says right there that Jesus blessed them, God in human flesh blessing them, and then they turn around and bless God, and that's the way the gospel works. You come to Jesus as a sinner, just lost as a goose, man, needing help, and you trust in Christ. He blesses you, and he fills you with his spirit, and then he empowers you, and you begin to bless him with your entire life. There it is. Final passage in this amazing book, man. A passage there filled with final things. You know when you step back and look at that last passage there? You look at what Luke has given us, how he ordered those things. When you think about that last passage there in light of the entire book of Luke, I think Luke has given us there the final and overarching application for this entire book. I think Luke has given us there his final so what. They tell you in seminary that every good sermon answers the so what question. You give people a lot of information from the Bible, but at some point you apply it and you say, so what? In light of all this information, what should you now do? And Luke is a good preacher. He has laid out for you 24 chapters of information concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. And at the end here, I think Luke gives us the final so what? What do we do with these 24 chapters? And you think back over the book of Luke. If you were with us at the beginning some four years ago, you may remember what Luke said at the beginning of this book. He said in chapter 1 that he was writing to a man named Theophilus, a man who had apparently learned some things about Jesus, but Luke wanted Theophilus to be certain about Jesus, so Luke wrote this long book of facts about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and sent it to Theophilus way back in Luke 1. For Luke said this. He said, I am writing to you, Theophilus, that you may have certainty. That you may be certain about who Jesus is and what Jesus did and why Jesus did it. And here's the thing. Luke doesn't just want Theophilus to have certainty. He wants you to have certainty. He wants you to know who Jesus is and what Jesus did. Luke wrote this so that you would be certain. And Luke's hope now at the end of this book, I believe, is that you are certain. I think Luke would look at you right now and say, you heard what I wrote here, you've read these things, and I think Luke hopes now that you believe these things about Jesus, that you are certain about these things concerning Jesus. But here's the thing, Luke doesn't want you just to have certainty. No, Luke wants you to do something with that certainty. He wants you to act on that certainty, and I really think Luke tells us here what to do with this certainty. If you, and I'll speak it to you, if you are now certain 
about who Jesus is and what Jesus did, what should you now do? I think Luke gives it to us in two simple words. Number one, worship. If you have certainty now about who Jesus Christ is, then worship Jesus. Luke says it there in verse 52. The original apostles now have certainty concerning Jesus. And what do they do? Luke says, and they worshiped him. Their certainty led to a worship of Jesus Christ. And I think Jesus would look at you. If you believe who I am, worship me. And not just on Sunday morning, but with your entire life. Obey me. Follow me. Know what I say in my word and obey it. Worship me. Enjoy me with your entire life. And number two, if you now have certainty concerning Jesus, what should you do? Witness. 